So, here's the big question. How do I get free? And what does that mean, anyway? Let's just say, for our purposes right now, that being free, or having, being awake, is a mind that is not reactive, that is compassionate, that there's wisdom, spaciousness, joy, all these qualities of mind that we associate with spirituality, with the kind of mind that perhaps we'd like to be having, whether or not that's actually happening while we're here. So how does that happen? How do we get to this spacious, free, beautiful mind? And is it gradual or is it sudden? Do you work at it or does it just happen to you? Is it already who we are, our inherent nature, or is it something that we transform into? I'm not really going to answer those questions. (laughs) And the reason is, they've been debated for centuries, for centuries in the course of Buddhist history. And there's all these different answers and views, and um, we could spend hours discussing that. But what I really want to get at, too, is look at really what the question is. This paradox of doing and not doing, of efforting and letting go, and how we can find our place in that, how we can really find some comfort with the question of how much effort to make. When is it time to settle back and let go and relax? When is it time to do? These are, these are very profound and important questions for this spiritual journey. So let's start with the doing piece. Let's start with the effort. Um, Effort, the word effort in the Pali language is virya, and it's, 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 it summons this kind of sense of, of energy, of working towards something. It's, um, it's a force of will in the body or mind, and the texts say it's, it, there's an arousal to it, an endeavor, and an exertion. So there's this quality, this sense of kind of doing something, of making something happen, of making effort happen. Now, at the same time, as we've been pointing to, as Eugene was talking about the other night, there are other ways of translating it. There's, there's words like wholeheartedness, or as Eugene said, devotion, devotedly working with ardency. These are all also in the same spirit of effort. But this, so this effort, it can have the sense of sort of propelling us forward to do something, and at the same time, it's, there's a great passion behind it. There's this, there's this sense of wanting to accomplish, to do. It's really ethically neutral. So we can have effort, we can have effort as we steal something, or we can have effort as we love someone. So it's a quality of mind that we bring to something that it's a mental factor, and it can be behind, or it can be um, uh, it can fuel aggression or it can fuel generosity. It's really interesting. So it's really, it's really this neutral quality that we summon up, this energy comes, and we can make, we can make this energy. And actually, the more we, we work, the more effort we put into something, the more effort grows. And we actually can develop it through the practice of, of making effort. But clearly, because of this neutral quality of it, it needs to be guided by wisdom, by having the right view and intention behind it. So when I say effort, it's very easy to get. Okay, I say effort and you have your automatic associations with effort. And that's because we live in a culture that's really has so much um, commitment to effort, let's put it that way. We, it's a very, as we know, it's a very type A culture. I mean, it's all about success and doing and going forward. And um, you're validated if you're a hard worker and hard work breeds success. And, you know, there's this whole, this is, this is the, the water that we swim in. It's also, there's lots of assumptions 
around it. So there's sometimes we'll see that that it, effort means discipline and perseverance. And if you you know, if at first you don't succeed, try try again, right? But I mean, this is this is you know, we learned that when we were five years old. And we know how to do things. We know how to try. We know how to make effort for the most part. And the assumption underlying it is a bit that if you make effort, you will have good results. Or you will have some result. Anyway, it's not necessarily always good, but results will happen because we do something and then you work at it, you learn to play the violin, you practice, you practice, you practice, and ultimately you can play Mozart. But it takes a while. So this is so it's very it's easy to think about this this quality, this spiritual quality of effort, because we know it well from our lives. It's incredibly important on the spiritual journey. <coughs> there are stories, and there are stories throughout all different kinds of um, Buddhist folklore and texts and so forth about people who have these spontaneous enlightenment experiences or awakenings where they're suddenly their mind just pops and they're free. It's pretty rare. Most of us have to work at it. And you know, we go back to this question, is it sudden or is it gradual? Does it happen just on the spot or do we work, do we work? And what you're probably going to guess is that it's probably both, right? When it happens, it's sudden. But until then, it's been gradual. You've been working at it, working at it, at least in this framework. So if we look at the history of different wonderful Buddhist teachers, and um, you'll, see, you'll see people, for instance, like Milarepa. Okay, some of you are familiar with Milarepa, who was the great Tibetan yogi, who in order to get to work, to actually um, begin, get transmission from his teacher, he had to build these towers of stone, and he would build the towers, and every time he would build these gigantic towers of stone, his teacher would come and knock them down, and then say, okay, build, build me another. And then he would build another tower of stone, and then the teacher would come and knock this down, and this went on for years and years and years. And Milarepa showed this tremendous effort and this willingness to be there, to really put in the work. Or you hear the Zen stories of people sitting outside the temple gates, waiting for their teacher to glance at them and let them in. Or in the Theravada tradition, we have the stories of Deepama, who was this wonderful, wonderful um, uh, meditation master and teacher, who was this woman who came, um, whose husband was living in Burma, and she was living with, she, she went over there to, you know, because she was married to him. And he ended up, um, she ended up going through all this tragedy. She lost a child and she lost her husband and she just had so much suffering. And the only thing that she thought she wanted to do was meditate. And she had so much physical pain that as the legend goes, she actually climbed up the steps to the meditation hall on her hands and knees and then practice for about three days, and boom, got enlightened. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that's inspiring or daunting. <laughs> you decide. The Buddha reminds us to strive on with diligence, to work hard, to practice. The Buddha said, if my bones and body, if my bones dry up, you know, I will not give up. If, my, if I turn to blood and bones, I won't give up. This is this endless kind of sense of we need to make effort. We need to make effort to attain in the spiritual life. I found this interesting story, a little more relatable, um, about a man who is really dedicated to his practice. Jeff Tipp has been creating new ways to practice three-month retreats without going anywhere. For two decades, he's been searching for ways to balance householder life and practice, ways that are appropriate to the times and kind to those around him. His son is 19, his mother is aging, and he runs a business. So they usually have these three-month retreats in his tradition. He practices in Korean Zen. And, but he felt like it wasn't fair to his family to be out of reach for such long periods of time. So some years ago, while running a construction company, he took Wednesdays off to practice, or as he says, to punch holes. 
I began to punch holes in the solid facade, the enclosure of samsaric life. He said, I began reclaiming pieces of my life for the purpose of retreat and practice. In the last three years, Tip has taken the next step, bringing the retreat home. He lives in a small studio, practices in a small meditation hut near his Vashon Island home, and rents out the larger house to help cover expenses. He's learning how to do extended retreat on his own and to um, motivate himself and to practice in order to continue this punching of holes. It's incredible dedication. He's just turned his life into a meditation retreat. He wants to punch holes in this illusion, this samsaric illusion. So, a number of years ago, I um, was really wanting to work hard in my practice. And so I decided that I would go to Burma to practice with a meditation master. I had worked with him in the States, and I had really wanted to increase my... I wanted, Essentially, I wanted to increase my effort. I felt like if I was working in... Um, if I was meditating in the monastery under his guidance, that it would increase my skill level, that I would... Um, that I would be doing it in the way that it had been done for thousands of years. And so I ended up in mindfulness boot camp. It was mindfulness from the moment you woke up till the moment you went to sleep. You basically got off the airplane and they said, hello, may you be mindful. Be mindful. Actually, it wasn't even may you be mindful, it was be mindful. So it was this sense of you had to be mindful all the time and you weren't, it was actually, it was very rigorous and um, ultimately a little annoying because you, ha- you were not supposed to not be mindful. I mean, you, of course, our minds are, don't, aren't mindful all the time, but the emphasis was you're mindful and then you need to come back. Whatever you're doing, whether it's your eating, whether it's your, you're, you're doing your laundry, you're making your bed, you're going to the toilet, you're, like, you have to be mindful of every single thing. And it was an incredible training in working with effort putting in the effort, you're encouraged not to sleep very much. I was encouraged to sleep four hours a night. I wasn't necessarily so successful, but I was encouraged to do it because this was considered a way to bring up the effort and energy. So if you're practicing and you're feeling inspired and motivated and excited and you want to bring up the level of effort and the energy of your practice, there's many, many things you can do. You don't have to go to a mindfulness boot camp. You can turn yourself into mindfulness boot camp, but I want to get really clear, and I'm going to talk about in this in a moment, about really looking at our motivation for why we want to work really hard. But let me just tell you a few things and just sort of listen. And as you're listening, notice your reaction. Notice whether what's happening is, oh, that sounds really exciting, I'm going to try that. Or, no way, I could never do that. Or, what, is she crazy? You know, I mean, it, notice what's happening because this is, this is a way we learn about our relationship to making effort. So, with our, with our sitting practice, we can become very, very specific. We can, um, we can really work on aiming, as Eugene talked about, aiming and sustaining with each breath. Bringing your attention to the breath and really, and even making vows. I will stay with this breath. I will stay with five breaths, with ten breaths, with fifty breaths. So what this does is that the, the intention itself increases the motivation, the ability to practice, to practice with more effort. You can make a vow to sit without moving, for example. You can say, I'm going to try this sit, I'm not going to move, and just see what happens. It often brings effort and energy to the body. Now it may bring aversion to the body, Right? You may think, this is awful, I hate this. So if that's happening, it's probably not doing the trick, and you might want to try something else. You could sit for longer periods of time, or walk for longer periods of time. One of my friends, who would practice late at night on long retreats, and he would walk, he would do walking meditation, and when he'd get really tired, just because he was curious about what it would be like to kind of push himself, he'd keep walking. 
And he'd walk for a couple hours at a time just to see what it was like. So sleeping less, as happened, um, as my teacher in Burma encouraged, eating less, all of these things are ways of bringing up, of, of trying a little bit harder, so to speak. Also, the practice of being continuous. So can we bring the mindfulness to all aspects of what we do? Now, there may be some things that it's easy. For instance, it might be easy to be mindful as you're walking to your dorm or as you're um, maybe eating is easy. So the areas that are difficult to be mindful are really the interesting areas to practice. I like to do what I call put frames around different things. So when I know I'm the least mindful of something, I deliberately put a mindfulness frame around it. So I imagine, okay, now I'm going to go take a shower and it's hard for me to be mindful when I'm showering. So this is when I amp up my mindfulness. This is when I deliberately become more mindful and I might slow down. And slowing down is another way to bring effort. So I might slow down and really pay attention. I might stop. I might break it into components. Walking to the shower, soaping up my hair, all of those things that can be broken down and that can increase the effort, the energy, and see what the results are. Now the thing is, there's a very important shadow side to mention to all this effort. Okay. A lot of us come on retreat and we're very excited and we have all this energy and we really want to work hard and succeed at meditation, whatever that is. I'm not quite sure, but um, it often can lead to a lot of being macho and sort of spiritual competitiveness. Like, oh, that person's sitting up straighter and longer than I am and I was really trying to work harder. They ate less than I did. And, or, you know, you go into the hall and you see someone who's been sitting for hours and hours and you feel... So this, this is not helpful for your practice. And it's one of the reasons why we can get a little... Uh, it, our effort can get a bit distorted when it starts to be competitive or we start judging ourselves. We start feeling guilty for being... for not working hard enough. You know, we're really trying hard and then, we, and then we feel guilty. So a bunch of um, years ago when I was, I was meditating on a long retreat and I had this thing about I only wanted to sleep four or five hours. So every morning I would wake up and I would look at my alarm clock. And if I looked at my alarm clock and it said, um, it said let's say I wanted to get up at four, I'm just making this up, but it said four o'clock, then I would be fine. Okay, I woke up at four and I would go out and, and meditate. But if I would wake up and the clock would say five o'clock or even later than four, these voices would come into my head. Are you lazy? How could you do this? You're supposed to sleep only five hours. How could you? And it would just go on and on. And it was really, really painful. And so my effort had gotten distorted and I had gotten judgmental of myself. And I finally one day actually sort of figured out something, which was that I was doing, I I would notice that this would happen. And one morning I woke up, I looked at the clock and it was five o'clock and this voice in my head said, here it comes. (laughs) And then the next thing was, you're so lazy. I can't believe you got up so late. And it was very interesting to see it as this almost automatic response of my, because I had these goals that I had set for myself and I wasn't meeting them. And so I just got angry at myself. So this is, again, this is a kind of distortion. So if you find yourself striving and working hard because you, um, and then getting mad at yourself when you're not meeting your goals, whatever they may be, then that's a problem. You don't want to be efforting in a way that causes agitation and self-hatred. We might be efforting for the wrong reasons. And I think it's really, really important that we pay attention to why we're, we're working so hard. And you might find out some things you don't want to find out about yourself. Wow, I feel like if I don't work hard, nobody will love me. Or I feel like this will turn me into a better person and I'm not a good enough person as I am. So it's very important to look at the motivation behind the effort. 
And sometimes the motivation is really, really lovely. It's just as we've talked about this wholehearted devotion, this desire for freedom, wanting to wake up. Or maybe your motivation is your suffering. And the suffering is profound, and you want to get out of this suffering or awaken in the midst of the suffering. So it's really important to be paying attention to what motivates you at all times around this, around many different aspects of this. I found that when I was practicing at the monastery, I was, as I said, I, got, I was very attracted to this very effortful style of practice. It seemed to me, it seemed to me to be like the true practice. That if you really, if you get up at four every single morning and you work really hard, and then suddenly you'll um, become enlightened, whatever that was. And I was working really, really hard. And what I hadn't realized was that it was kind of a tendency of my mind. You know, I was sort of a type A person, and if I hadn't been in the monastery meditating and working really hard, I would have been, you know, in some corporate job working really hard or some or any other profession working really hard. But instead, I was applying that to my mindfulness meditation. And I made a lot of effort over a long period of time, and I was there in the monastery for about a year. And the more, after a certain point, it can't, it's not sustainable, that kind of effort. So it was sort of like I was trying to run a marathon by sprinting. You know, that kind of effort isn't sustainable. And so what I began to see when I, I, I started coming up against a lot of burnout, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand why I couldn't practice in the way that I wanted to be practicing. And I was trying so hard, and I saw myself as so deeply devoted to this. And I was doing what I wanted to be doing, and this was, this was what my heart's greatest desire was. But what I began to see was that I wasn't looking closely at my own motivation. And as I began to unpack that motivation, what I began to see was that I wasn't so happy with who I was, and I thought that if I got some spiritual experience, it would change me, and I would be, everyone would love me, and I would be happy for the rest of my life, and I would never be mean to anyone, and I never hurt anyone, and I would be virtuous. And I had all these assumptions placed on why I was working so hard. And so when I began to see that, it was like, oh, I need to relax. I can't practice for these reasons. I want to practice out of the love. I don't want to practice out of the not liking myself. And so things began to shift when I began to see clearly. And it took time. It took lots of time. And I think our motivations are always mixed. We're never really completely uh, doing something out of some sort of pure motivation. That's that's, That's a fabrication. But so again, the importance of checking in with one's motivation. So what was happening for me in the monastery was I had a lot of effort, but I didn't have a lot of equanimity. And equanimity is the non-doing side, the balancing of effort. Okay. So equanimity, the word is upeka, and um, it's generally translated as evenness, even-mindedness, balance, mind of equilibrium. The German monk Nyanaponika calls it the perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. And for those of us, like Eugene, who like the roots of words, the word upa it means over, and iksh is to look, to overlook. And so the implication is, with equanimity, one has the highest view. One's looking down. It's a sense. So if you've ever gone to the top of a really, really tall building and looked down, and suddenly the whole world comes into perspective, oh, those are my, look at those cars, they're so tiny. Yeah, it's just, life isn't so horrible and so personal in the way we see it. So that's upeka, this open, spacious, even-minded quality. 
And it's a natural quality that we all have. So you've had times on your own where you've, you've just, something, maybe something tragic has happened in your life, but you've been very calm and even-minded and been able to handle it. That's equanimity. It's very, it's very common. At a deeper level, it becomes this beautiful, beautiful quality of mind that you may have touched into on this retreat or maybe continually touching into it. And it's this quality of the mind not moving. It's like this open spaciousness that whatever is happening is not disturbing your mind. That you can be in the midst of some kind of suffering. Maybe you're in grief. And yet your mind is free. Your mind is relaxed, is open, is balanced. It's it's a quality of mind that's not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on the world being a certain way. It simply sees things just as they are. So uh, the Zen teacher Basho, he, he, who did a lot of his practice in farms and, and um, barns and things like this, his, his expression, his haiku expression of equanimity is fleas, lice, horse pissing near my pillow. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so equanimity, it comes, it, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. We can have an even mind, a balanced mind, if we're sad, if we're, if we're really excited. Maybe we're having all this great stuff happening on this retreat, and wow, this is the best retreat I've ever had. Okay, relax into the balance, the, the even mind, this natural quality that we can all access. It's there, too. It can hold the good, the bad, the ugly. It's when, you, when equanimity begins to develop to, and ripens to a more refined and stronger state, a teacher once said to me that it's the sweetest taste imaginable. Having a mind of equanimity is the sweetest taste you can possibly imagine. It's a happiness that's beyond the happiness of getting what you want, of something blissful or joyous or good happening, because it's a happiness of not dependence upon conditions. Now, the shadow side of equanimity... Just like with effort, there's a shadow side to the equanimity. One is that we can get really spaced out. Okay, so you're practicing, you're like, oh, I'm really equanimous, I'm open. I'm, you know, and then just an hour passes, you don't even know what happened, but you've been really equanimous. <laughs> or another shadow side might be that this kind of false, like, it's all good. I'm equanimous, I have an even-minded balance, I'm, everything's fine, the world is fine but it's really kind of a disconnection or an apathy. So we want to be careful. There can be this kind of false spirituality in equanimity where we feel like we've achieved, when we touch into it, oh, okay, now there's something special happening. I'm really equanimous. So just notice, same as with the effort, when the notice the different facets of it. Notice what's happening. I mean, this is our practice. Noticing and understanding ourselves. That's our practice. So it can be cultivated in a number of ways. Um, It can be cultivated deliberately. There is an equanimity practice, and you're welcome to do it at any time. Or some people do a whole retreat of equanimity practice. And there's phrases you say just like with the metta. And the phrases, there's a whole range of phrases. Some, one of them is, beings are the heirs of their karma or their actions. Their happiness and their unhappiness are dependent upon their actions and not on my wishes for them. And that cultivates that quality of letting go, of being okay amidst conditions. A simple way of doing it is simply is things are as they are. Things are as they are. This is a great phrase. If you're in the middle of anything and you're just 
freaking out and suddenly just remember things are as they are. Ah, okay, there's equanimity. Our minds let go a little bit. It relaxes. Equanimity also, in some sense, the problem with equanimity is you can't make equanimity happen. For those of you who are really into effort, okay, now I've got my effort, now I'm going to really effort to get some equanimity. It doesn't work that way. Because equanimity, it's this very sort of, it's this quality of letting go. So so it's sort of when the mind, when we keep staying with things and being with them again and again over time, and then ultimately there's this relaxation or this, this, it, it grows as we practice. So it's really the paradox of equanimity is that you can't make it happen. Yes, you can do some different cultivation practices, but really it just comes on its own through the moment-to-moment mindfulness, observing your experience again and again. Now sometimes equanimity can arrive in a moment, a flash of insight. After I'd gone through that process in Burma where I had gotten, where I realized that I had been so efforting so hard and I needed to develop some equanimity, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I had to back off and to relax and be a bit more spacious about things. But what was happening at the time was I was having a really hard time with the wildlife in Burma. There were snakes and scorpions and bugs and spiders and oh, centipedes, poisonous, and these giant things that look like half snake, half lizard. With, so it was like a snake with legs, four legs. It was really <laughs> gross. I don't know what they were called. I called them the uglies, but I don't think that was their technical name. And they were, the, they were just like... I was scared a lot, let's put it this way. I was living in this state of terror. It was not equanimity. I was either like, okay, if I just meditate harder, it'll all go away. Or um, I'll get enlightened, and then it'll really go away. Or, um, or complaining, basically. Those were the two pieces I careened back and forth. But actually, the worst experience I had was um, mosquitoes. There were just, especially during particular seasons, there were just tremendous amounts of mosquitoes. And I was living in this hut, it was a concrete hut, and it had little holes in the wall that were ostensibly for ventilation, but were sort of mosquitoes' gateway to my flesh. And so, trying to be, um, I was trying to meditate, and I really didn't like those mosquitoes there. So I did all sorts of things. I started putting up magazines over the holes in the wall, but then I got incredibly hot because there was no ventilation. So I took them up. We did have mosquito nets, but it didn't. They would often get into the mosquito net, and then you would be meditating in a torture chamber. So I was meditating. So I tried the magazines. Then I tried the, um, I got this big bucket of lake water and I put it out in the, in the middle of the room and I would go to sleep and, I, and then the mosquitoes would be attracted to it. In the morning I'd wake up and throw something over the top and rush it out and hit the lamp. And, and it, would, um, it would get them out for a little bit, but it wasn't terribly successful. And then I found the great solution, which was you, you turn off all the lights and you stand at night and stand in front of the window and then yell, come and get me. And they would attract it to me, and they would fly towards me, and I'd jump out the way they were going to the window, and they'd fly out the window. And I felt like a torador. <laughs> yeah. And that worked. But, as I'm sure you're beginning to see, I was spending a great deal of time trying to get rid of mosquitoes and not meditating. And what it suddenly dawned on me in this flash of insight was that I could create mosquito traps and I could plug up holes in the wall and I could you know, bring lake water in and all of that, but there was always going to be another mosquito. And that became my mantra. There's always another mosquito. So no matter what you do, there's always another mosquito. Something's always going to happen. When I saw that, it was like, oh... I'm going to have to develop a mind that can be okay with the mosquitoes rather than trying to fix it, change it, do stuff. Can I be equanimous? And that's when equanimity began to develop. And that's when I also started using the mantra every time I would get freaked out, there's always another mosquito. 
So I pass that on to you. <laughs> if you want. <laughs> So, when you're working, it's clear, I hope, that there's got to be a balance between these two. That there's, we need, we have to put in work on the cushion. We make effort. We, we, we try. And at the same time, we learn to let go. We learn to be with things as they are. We can open up to that more spacious quality. But then other times we really need to to, um, to work at it. And when it gets, it, there are points when the equanimity and the effort balance out. And you've all experienced that because those are the moments where it feels like it's almost effortless. Like, oh yeah, I can do this. You're really with the breath. You're fully there. And you're present, and you're putting in some effort, but it doesn't feel like it takes too much effort to do it. And you're letting go. And so these equine, they, they'll be, there'll be times, and it'll continually go in and out of balance. But we're, we're, we, we can reach these places of this balancing of the two. But if you want to actually work with this, with this balance of energy and equanimity, effort and equanimity, there's a couple of things, a couple of practical tools for this. So the first is really knowing your tendency. So I needed to know that I was this type A person that really wanted to be successful as a meditator. You know, if you know that you're the kind of person that's pretty laid back and you come to a spirit rock and you walk around and have a lot of tea and check out all the birds and sit and look at the deer and that's pretty much your retreat, okay, you know you're that kind of person. So now you have to ask yourself, well, do I want to be making a little more effort? Um, so, that's, so that's the first pace. Know, know who you are. Know what you tend to do. And the way you figure that out is you observe it. You see what you do. The next piece is about assessing and skillfully having a response, applying skillful means. So this is always tricky. And really all of this, everything I'm going to say, it just takes practice. You know, it's not like we get it. There's not a getting of it. And I had this moment once in my practice where actually right before I left for Burma, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, he said, you got to be really careful because in Burma they encourage you to make a lot of effort. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I understand right effort, no problem. And he looked at me and he said, Diana, effort changes. Right effort changes. So what you'll see is sometimes the effort that you make at one point doesn't seem enough at another time or it seems too little. So you really have to, you have to know that it's kind of this living, breathing entity that's going to change from time to time. So for instance, you're meditating and you look down and you, or you feel yourself and you realize you're sweating. Maybe you're applying a little too much effort and you need to relax. Or maybe you've had your eighth cup of tea for the day. Maybe it's time to come in and do a little more sitting or walking meditation and not skip out on the walking meditation like you've been doing. All right. Nobody, I don't have anyone in mind. And um, you, so it's really this interesting thing of, of you can make assessments. You sort of look at, you look or feel or sense yourself and ask yourself, what do I need to amp up the energy? Would it be, would it be skillful or would I be doing it out of, because I'm mad at myself or Am I feeling sorry for myself and that's why I'm taking this time off? Or do I really honestly need to learn to love myself a little bit more and not be so hard on myself? That's really valid. It can even get really moment to moment. I mean, I remember times when I was on this retreat where I would do walking meditation and suddenly I'd notice that I was completely spaced out and I'd say, oh, okay. So, and so I would bring my attention into my feet and I would walk with this tremendous precision and I would slow down and just sense every teeny, teeny, tiny muscle movement possible. But then, after maybe 10 minutes of that, I would start to feel really tight and my mind would be a little uncomfortable. And I, okay, relax, open up, and just listen to the birds. And so I would be doing the walking meditation, listening to the birds, just really kind of 
being gentle and open and spacious, and then suddenly I'd notice that I really spaced out again. And so I'd come back, and so it really, it can work on this moment-to-moment level. Another thing that was useful for me for working with the effort, when I was getting too effortful, was I realized that what I was doing was, I was trying to be mindful in this way, where it was kind of like this aggressive energy coming from my head into my toes to feel my feet and be mindful. (laughs) And I suddenly realized that maybe let's reframe it. How about mindfulness from the ground up? Just letting it flow into me, come into me, and just inhabit mindfulness rather than that tough kind of, "Uh, I'm no good and therefore I have to be mindful energy. So you can really play with it on this either moment-to-moment or bigger picture level. It's important to be really kind to yourself around this. Because it's not easy, it's not intuitive necessarily. Maybe for some of us it is, but mostly it takes time to figure this out. And also, trial and error is really great. And that's how we develop our experience. That's how we know. So you're meditating and you get really loose and you realize that you haven't been mindful for a single breath and you've sort of been off in space. And okay, so now you come back. And it's like you bring yourself back, and then you're back, and then suddenly you realize you're too tight. You, you just keep, you, can, you go down a road, and then you realize you're too far on one side, and you come back. And it's just, you just learn. You get, you get it through the learning process. And in that way, intuition develops. So over time, and many of you have been practicing a long time, and you've probably noticed a sense of intuition, like you're a better guide for your practice now because you know how to listen to yourself. And it's really, really important to develop that quality, to be your own best teacher. Finally, this piece, and I've mentioned it several times now, looking at your motivation. Why am I making effort? Why am I focusing on the spacious awareness? Really? Why am I here, even? I mean, these are great questions because we learn so much about ourselves. So, for instance, a good example is, and because this is a question that people ask all the time, you're sitting, you're, you're sitting in a meditation posture and you start to experience knee pain. So you have a couple of choices. You can sit there and be really mindful of the knee pain. You can notice it, notice the change, the shift, that it's moving, that it's crawling up your, but that, it, that you're so mad that you hate it, it's miserable, whatever. You can notice all that. But sometimes people say, why can't I just move? Well, you could. Maybe moving is completely appropriate. There isn't a right answer. What the question might be instead is, what is your motivation? What are you looking to learn? So for instance, if, you're, if you really are curious about pain and that's your motivation, then you want to stay with the pain because that's how you'll learn. But if, you, you know, if you've been sitting with pain all day and you realize, I actually want to be really gentle on myself in this particular sitting, you might decide to move. Or you're having a lot of emotional pain, so it doesn't feel right to be sitting with the physical pain. Or you just, I don't know, there's many, many possibilities. So as I said before, it becomes this incredible dance of the effort and the equanimity of the doing and of the non-doing, of the sudden, of the gradual, of the relaxing and of the efforting. And it's interesting, I, just, I had read this thing, and I, unfortunately I couldn't find it, because I, I wanted to bring it, but it was um, Herbert Benson who's done all that work on the relaxation response. He did, his recent work has been around the way minds um, remember things and retain information and access information. And so what he found is that if you forget something, the thing to do is not sit there and go, oh, what's, what is it, what is it, what is it, and really think about it and think about it. The thing to do actually is to relax. So you, so you, um, 
So your mind is doing the work prior. If you're studying for a test or something, you study, you study, you study, and then you relax. Because that mind, need, our minds need that kind of spacious, relaxed quality as well as the doing quality. So you can start to see it in these different facets of life. And I think it becomes even more interesting when we start thinking about, you know, this is, a, this is a question in our lives all the time. Do I stay in this relationship or do I get out? You know, do I learn to accept this relationship that's driving me crazy but I'm learning so much from it or do I make a decision to leave? Should I stay with this difficult job because I'm practicing equanimity and acceptance or do I find some different kind of work? It's all, I mean, this practice is a microcosm for what we experience out in the world. And this, this particular lens that I'm pointing to tonight can be very helpful for making decisions even. Because if we can look at these different pieces of it that, that I sort of outlined around how we work meditatively, we can actually work with that with our minds with, in our lives. So for instance the big question of what is my motivation is always helpful. And noticing how we work, how we develop things over time through experience, how our intuition develops through trial and error. You know, this, it's, all, it's the same principle, the same principle that we're doing. This principle, this question of letting go versus doing can also be very alive around looking at the injustice in the world. So we see this world with all sorts of profound suffering around us at all times, and it's, do we act? We've got to act. I mean, many of us, particularly those of you who are in helping, we're activist fields, find yourself drawn to acting constantly, but... Is, the coming, is, is it possible to be acting from a place of letting go? Like what if we were to be in the midst of it with this deep sense of things are as they are? And not as apathy, not as disconnection, but just this true understanding of the nature of all things. Things are as they are. The equanimity. And from that place, we act with great ardency, wholeheartedness, and devotion. It's a very different model for making change in the world than the model of crisis solving or acting out of fear or acting out of uh, anger, which is really common. So there's a lot to say here, and I'm just going to touch on it, but it just to just... To think about, think about these principles, ha- principles, how they operate in our lives and out in the world, outside of the retreat. So I think I'll just end with a story that might illustrate some of this. A few years ago, I was in Costa Rica visiting friends, and I had been invited to um, go bird watching with them, which I had never done before because I didn't want to be a bird nerd. But I um, decided I would go for it. And one of my friends was this avid, avid bird nerd, bird watcher. And he, he said, I'm going to teach you. And I said, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And he said, he said you can do it. You can do it. So they gave me some binoculars, and we were going, and Costa Rica just has this remarkable, this multicolored, beautiful birds everywhere. And um, he, he would, so we'd be walking down the road, and he would say, okay, up to your left. And I would take my binoculars, and I'd go, where? Like that. <laughs> and then the bird, of course, would fly away, right? And then, and then he'd go, okay, just wait till the next one. And then we walk a little further, and he, he'd say, bird, he'd say, bird, and I'd where? And I'd lift my hand and I'd look out and it's gone. And, and then I was like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm really trying too hard. I need to relax. So he'd say, he'd say, bird over up there on that tree. And I'd say, and I'd say, okay, hold on. And I'd just bring it to my eyes, really relax. And again, I would miss the bird. 
you know. And so this went on for, and I was starting to get so frustrated, and I just it was miserable. And this isn't fun. And of course, everybody else we were with a couple of people. Everybody else was very successful. They were, oh, look at that gorgeous parrot. It's over there. It's beautiful. And I go, where, where? <laughs> and so um, finally, at a certain point, it was like I just relaxed. But I remembered, you know, I remember, Diana, you've been meditating for 15 years. You know what this is. It's the same thing. It's right here. And so I remember just that perfect moment where he said, to your left, up on that tree. And I just, with this great ease, and got it. Like, there it was. And then this remarkable bird came into my vision, and this beautiful, beautiful wings and feathers and multicolored. And it was as if the whole world had opened up to me in the balance. So let's meditate for a few minutes. So may we learn to come to that continually changing balance of effort effort and equanimity. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 23, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.